This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, the courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, another win, mate. How are we feeling? Good, good. Um, Slightly worried that they might ultimately be fruitless, but I still think it's a relief to see our team back. Like, as as you well know, there were times a season when we thought they weren't coming back. And so to see them back and to be able to go into games with that familiar feeling of quiet confidence is a real relief. Yeah, I agree with you, mate. It's, it's another another solid win. We are in in contention now for a for a spot on the top four. Uh, the probabilities are coming up a little bit for us. I think we've been touching on it each week in terms of like percentages and things like that. In terms of Liverpool getting fourth, we are now up to thirty seven percent, which is decent. Really, going into our last two games and the last three for Newcastle and Man United, I think that number will get impacted tonight. Depending on what happens in the, in the Newcastle and Brighton game, that is a really interesting one. I'll be I'm looking forward to watching that one. Any thoughts on how that'll go? It's a tough one because I think you look at the way Newcastle have performed generally at home and with the crowd behind them, you think that they should have enough to go on. But if they were ever going to be nervous, it would be now at this point with us coming and having seen what Brighton did uh, in their last game, and what we have done most of the time, apart from obviously the Everton anomaly, as I'm going to be calling it. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it's it's a tough one. My gut instinct says a draw, which is just enough to keep us interested. I would take a draw every day of the week, mate. To be honest, my okay. gut instinct says a Newcastle win, mainly because it's at home. But I do rate Brighton very, very highly, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously with with Newcastle being slightly ahead of us with a few games left and us being a bit more experienced with this sort of thing. You just never know what seed could be planted in the heads of their players if they concede first or if it's goalless after half an hour or the first half or whatever. Mm. So that's going to be an interesting one to follow. But in terms of Liverpool, we do have a few talking points. I suppose it's a relatively quiet week, but we did beat Leicester. We'll touch on elements of that. And we have a few confirmed departures. Um, some very sad ones in there as well. So we're, we're going to talk about legacies, essentially, and what, what those players are leaving behind, what they will be remembered for and things like that. I suppose in an analyzing Anfield sense, we'll try and make it as tactical and as, <laughs> as data-driven as possible. Uh, but in the Leicester game, yeah, I mean, two players shined, I think, really. Liverpool, again, it's worth noting, posted a solid um, expected goals game. In terms of numbers, this is what we're doing now with this new formation. Again, Liverpool posted 2.2 expected goals from their total of 16 shots. Leicester only took four shots and it was 0.4 expected goals. So another dominant performance. But <clears throat> Liverpool's goal scorers all emanating from Liverpool made two scouts. What do you think? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. <laughs> Particularly considering the song choices of some of the Leicester fan base. I thought it was quite yeah. pertinent. But I think for Curtis in particular, there's been a lot of talk that his place of birth is the reason for him being in the team. 
Now, I'd like to think anyone who watched that Leicester game would be rethinking that assessment right now. Um, he's grown with every game. I think we said that a couple of weeks ago. And he's starting to show now the things that he can do in this Liverpool midfield that no one else can do at the moment. I mean, I think his goal threat, when you look at the rest of the midfielders, all of them have the ability to score goals, but they do they have the instinct to arrive in goal-scoring positions time and time again. That's what we're seeing from Curtis at the moment. And I think along with his ability to keep hold of the ball in a way that, again, is unmatched, I think, in, amongst our midfielders, I think those two things are really driving his current renaissance. Yeah, it is. It is interesting that he's he, he's scoring as often as he is. You know, it's it, it's three goals now for the season in the Premier League, and um, I'm pretty sure in saying all three have came in this current run of starts, mm-hmm. uh, in this kind of new role. Um, but if you if you compare them to a lot of Liverpool's options so far this season, you know we we know these players that I'm going to list now offer different qualities and stuff. But say for example, Thiago. Thiago has 14 starts in the Premier League this season. Henderson has 22 starts. Um, Ox has four. Harvey Elliott has 18. Um, who else is in there? James Milner has six. Naby Keita has three. Peter Jones has 10 starts so far, and he's got he's got more goals than all of those players I've just listed combined. Um. So he, <laughs> so it, it it kind of captures like I suppose a new element that he has added. As you've said, there he does keep the ball a lot for Liverpool. He offers a lot of what I, kind of like a glue in the final third, I think. Um, but on top of that, if you are occupying this kind of hybrid number ten slash number eight role in this new three two five, you are playing in an attacking bank of five a lot of the time, and if you're doing that you have to offer a, a, an attacking threat. And as, as industrious and as helpful as Henderson is at times, it's it's not something that he offers. And that's why I think moving forward, it makes sense to drop Henderson back into the the two. Um, and it's why it makes sense for Jones to operate in the five. And it's, it's why he's prospering, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think with Henderson, he can do a job in this 10. I think what you see from him... It's more being uh, someone who kind of recycles the ball. Again, very much what we've seen from Harvey Elliott in terms of trying to start little overloads and little triangles and try to get the attacking players in position to score, which is all well and good and has pretty much worked for him most of his Liverpool career. But like you say, the difference with having the five attackers is if you're an opponent and your whole game plan is set up to try and stop what we feel as our nominal three forwards then Henderson's balls might be good, but they might come to a, a forward who's got two defenders in front of him. Whereas if you're in a situation where you can be a goal threat yourself, they can't afford to put three guys on a Mo Salah or a Cody Gakpo. So everyone's going to get more space and they have to kind of honour the positions of the players on the pitch a little bit more. So Henderson can do that job. I just think that you need, if he is doing that job, then the other 10 definitely needs to have a goal threat. But I, I agree with you. I do think next season, when we're playing this season, this system, he is more likely to be at the bottom of the box than the top of the box, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But I, I agree with you in this, in, when when you mentioned the both, you know, 
it has been a bit of a controversial thing when it comes to him being a, a Liverpool player because he's scouts essentially, um, which which I always think has been a bit of a nonsense. And uh, if, if you do look at him play over the past month or so, maybe two months, he does look like such a, a well-rounded player who can do a lot of things. Um, still only 22 years old, homegrown, come out of the academy. I think he's like six foot two or something like that, is he? Six foot one or something. Um, very, very technical. Can offer a goal threat. An absolute natural when it comes to pressing. I think his counter pressing has been superb. I saw a little uh, graphic actually during the week posted by Statsbomb comparing him to comparing his numbers this season to Wijnaldum's numbers potentially from I'm just getting it up now I think it was from when Liverpool won the league hmm. um, but in, in, in comparison to Wijnaldum he's basically keeping the ball just as much um, but in terms of like his his pressures his pressure regains his possession adjusted tackles and even his, his, his value in the build up is, is he's just offering so much more than mine album did, um, in a numerical sense at least, um, and he's as I said he's still he's still really young and stuff like that. So it's it's exciting to see, considering like what he could be moving forward, especially next season. I think so, and I think when you're thinking about the way that his game and he has developed in this role in the short time we've seen in these nine, like nine starts in a row, I believe it is. Then think about what he would be like if you give him a whole pre-season to deal with, uh, to, to be able to adapt to it a little bit more, understand the nuances. I think it's really exciting. And when you consider what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago in terms of recruitment, in terms of making sure we've got all the skill sets covered, I think seeing him add parts to his game is going to be really, really important. I do still wonder how much we are going to be able to rely on him next season because let's face it the reason that he, we haven't been really able to rely on him a lot this season is through no fault of his own it's through his, the injury stuff that he is still managing so whether this is something that a long rest over the summer can finally put to bed or it's something that we're going to have to continue to manage which means that there's going to be time particularly when we're playing two games in a week where we can't always use him then I don't know. I mean, that that whether it's one or the other is going to make a big decision about how much we see of him next year and whether or not we need to supplement his game with someone else who can do that job as well. Well, that left-sided midfield role in, as part of the box look, looks tailor-made for, for Alexis McAllister, for me, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, he's going to cost a lot of money as well. So it'll be interesting to see how Klopp kind of rotates with those players. Um, obviously, we have a lot of attackers as well in terms of forwards, like Nunes is getting benched a fair bit and and things like that. So Klopp's going to have a lot of offensive talent next season if if we sign the players that we are supposedly interested in. Um, but what what's your stance on the whole? Um, you know, what why has Klopp taken so long to use Jones in, in terms of him being this good? Because I I do think that it. I do think he's a top player in terms of what he can offer and stuff like that. But I also think we we can't kind of overlook just how much this new role is impacting him. Mm-hmm. Because previously, the left-sided role as part of the 4-3-3 in midfield consisted of... It was basically a controlling role, wasn't it? It, yes. was, uh, it was Thiago, it was Wijnaldum, super safe. 
it was dictating the game. And I think Jones has always been a bit more offensive-minded, mm-hmm. a bit more inclined to drift towards the final third, more expressive and stuff. And this new role allows him to do it. So yeah. if Jones would have started to be used in the team, say, around January or something like that, would he be playing this well and and contributing to this extent? I'm not really sure, but he's certainly doing it now. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I, I agree. I do think it's a very different job. And aside from the fact that it's easier to play well when the team is playing well and everyone seems a little bit more energised, because that's one thing we've seen from this change. It seems to have energised players. It seems to... People people seem to have a little bit more intensity about themselves, whether that's tactically they now believe in it or whatever. That has helped everybody raise their level. But I think a key difference, particularly with Curtis, and like you say, that left-sided midfield, is Andrew Robertson. He's the difference, because he's the, there's, he did an interview today that's just come out on the Liverpool official website where he's talking about his role. And he's talking about how he's having to be more conservative and how he's having to pick and choose the times when he can come in. Because essentially, he is a more regular, regimented part of the defensive line. Now that there's three of them covering the back instead of four, he has to be a lot more diligent. So that means that Curtis's um, responsibilities change. So whereas previously, when Robertson was high, he would always have to keep an eye out for the counter-attack, now it's kind of swapped. And as much as, obviously, Robertson going forward was a weapon, he was very good. If you want to say Robertson should have more defensive responsibility and Jones should have more attacking responsibility, that's probably the right way around to have it. Yeah. And if you if you look at Robertson as well, he is, I know he's this Duracell bunny of a, of a fullback, but he is now 29, so... You, you could argue that such a, such a change in terms of role and responsibilities could almost benefit him as he as he does kind of age beyond absolute prime because he I suppose he's technically expected to cover a bit less ground in, in this role um, unless he does just want to keep getting forward which <laughs> he's, he's inclined to do. Well, um, what I've seen I think from him is that he tends to do it in the second half now when either the game state is a little bit changed, so maybe we're ahead, as has been the case most of the time, or the defences are a little bit more tired. So again, he can he can do more damage with those runs. So it's not a case of him just making runs and making runs and making runs and not getting the ball. Now it's when he's doing it, he's actually being more focused with it. And quality over quantity in terms of his attacking. And yeah, I 100% agree with you. I do think it's something that's going to help him in the long run. I also think that for the we, we underestimate how difficult the role for both fullbacks has been because we give them so much praise for their attacking job. We forget that having so much attacking responsibility puts a strain on their defensive efforts as well. So giving him that little bit less to do going forward probably gonna help him with the defensive and with like you say, energy going forward. I mean, Trent on the opposite side, we we have touched on a fair bit over the past few weeks. But we have to, I mean, that free kick was just uh, superb, wasn't it? And that little routine, it's not even a routine, really. It's just a really subtle, under-the-radar addition to what yeah. you do that really does change the makeup of the situation. But I've seen Liverpool do that a few times now, where Salah will just kind of lay the ball so that the free kick 
isn't getting actually isn't actually getting struck where the ball is. It's getting struck like roughly two or three yards to the right of where the ball of where the initial free kick was was awarded, and it just allows Trent to get that that bit more space around the wall. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a match earlier in the season. I can't remember who it was against. Potentially Chelsea. It was a stalemate, whatever it was. Um, and we did the same, and the ball was going in, but I bounced off Henderson's head at the time yeah. and went wide. But this was us doing it again, and again, Trent finds the net. So I'm a big fan of that. But in, in terms of Trent and and his performances lately, I think he just kind of he, he summed up there really what has been a a really really good period for him. Yeah, and it's funny because there's been times this season where Trent's been over free kicks, and I've been kind of hopeful more than expectant. But honestly, as soon as I saw where that free kick was, I was like, this is a goal. This is a goal. (laughs) Because if he could have put it down anywhere in terms of an area of the pitch, that was perfect. And the defence knew that. So they were very much honouring the the first off shot. So to do that little mix where they do the bit, so it's a a moving ball, was perfect because it would have been the last thing they'd have expected because the angle was already perfect for him. But... Trent likes hitting a moving ball. He can able to get more power from a moving ball. We see it when he hits these free kicks. And it was just unstoppable. But <clears throat> I think, again, going back to what we were saying about Robertson, we do uh, celebrate and concentrate a lot on their attacking efforts. But I think defensively, in midfield, the, being a, his, his ability to be able to adapt to what is being asked of him has been the biggest surprise to me. Because... I knew he could do all those attacking things. I knew we just had to get him back in the right positions to do it. But as I said previously, my fear of him in midfield was from the defensive side. But he's been a revelation. Like, I don't know if you saw um, the BBC put out some stats around him last week before the Leicester game, um, saying he was uh, of all the, the, the things that he's doing well. Did you see it? Yeah, I think I did. He was first in a lot of departments, wasn't he? Yeah. And I mean, okay, so I'll read them out to you. Um, assists, through balls, touches, uh, passes into the final third. And this is the one that I was most shocked at, possession one. Now, this is between the 9th of April, when he first started playing in the midfield role, to the 7th of May, which is just before the Leicester game. And not only was the Trent the Liverpool leader in terms of possession one, he won possession more than any other player in the whole Premier League in that month, 63 times. Now, yeah, that is not something we associate with Trent Alexander-Arnold. No, no. But that is definitely what he's going to need to be able to do if he's going to exist in midfield long term. So for him to be up to speed with that so quickly, definitely is a good sign. Yeah, well, one of the curious things about that, though, um, not to be, <laughs> I suppose, negative in any way, but <laughs> he, because of the nature of this system, he's. Since we've started using this this three two five, he's played every single minute, as far mm-hmm. as I'm aware. He's played every game, and if we're going to use that moving forward, we're going to have to find some form of solution for when he needs a break. And yes. obviously, we got Calvin Ramsey in at the start of the season to kind of back up him essentially. Um, but that 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 was when the fullback role was very different. Um, yes. I suppose Henderson could potentially attempt to do it. I think it's insistent that Moises Casado was doing it lately for Brighton um, because of injuries to, I think it was Veltman or or somebody yeah. like that. 
Um, or potentially when Trent isn't playing, we just we just play like we're playing four three three. But whenever whenever Trent is is absent at the minute, I'm not sure how we do it. Um, but just touching on the, the the Leicester game again, one of the things that I really loved about the game was if you look at Leicester's attack and, and the, the selection that Dean Smith picked, he picked Jamie Vardy up front. Yep. Now, if there's one thing you expect when it comes to Jamie Vardy, what are you worried about more when, I think, when you think of Jamie Vardy? Um, <clears throat> runs in behind, off, across the back of defenders, winning fouls and free kicks. Uh, basically, and whenever he gets an opportunity to shoot, him scoring. <laughs> These are the things. Like, I think he scored more goals against Klopp's Liverpool than any other player. So, yeah, I mean, he's yeah. normally going to score, but we we didn't give him a sniff, and I loved it. Exactly. Well, when you say runs in behind, that was the first thing that you said. Runs in behind. That that's what you have to be worried about with with Jamie Vardy. And I I thought Allison's sweeping was was absolutely on the money. I thought it was spot on throughout the game, and it's easier said than done. Um. But after the game, I did check the numbers and he posted seven defensive actions outside the penalty box in the game. That is his most all season uh, in all competitions, in, including games for Brazil and everything like that. He posted six against Crystal Palace away and he posted five against Arsenal at Anfield. Then there's a few falls, but seven against Leicester is a lot. And I'm yeah. pretty certain that that will have been a premeditated message in his ear. Jamie Vardy is playing, watch the balls over the top, and he just did it relentlessly for 90 minutes. And we already know he's the best in the world, in my opinion. That's not even close. But this just reaffirmed like another, another layer of his, of his game. He's so good when it comes to distribution. We know his shot stop on numbers are superb best in the Premier League this season and um, even when it comes to the likes of this sweeper keeping stuff he's just superb he is and I think the thing about it with Leicester as well is because when you look at the team that they played attacking wise Barnes, Tielemans, Madison and Didi and uh, Samari with the exception of Samari they've all played together for a, a good four years now so they all know the triggers. So if any of those midfielders get the ball in space, the first thing they're trying to do is see, can we put a ball in them behind? So to have to be so diligent about it for the whole game and to still deal with it so impressively, I thought was fantastic because essentially we did both jobs. We were able to stop the midfielders getting enough space to get that ball on. And then when they did, Alisson was there to clean it out. Yeah, it was a, a top performance and I think it might be his third clean sheet in a row, I think. And I think somehow, that's quite crazy, but I think somehow the only player in the Premier League with more clean sheets done this season is David De Gea, despite the campaign Liverpool have had and despite De Gea being a shambles at times. It just sums up how clean sheets is not the best way of assessing a goalkeeper, really. And the whole golden glove thing is a nonsense, essentially. But it's not a nonsense of Alisson with it. <laughs> well, it's just, they have. I can understand where it came from. They they want to do something to yeah. recognize the keepers in the same way they recognize the goal scorers. But like you say, it's not quite the same because a goalkeeper can have a bad day and keep a clean sheet, and a goalkeeper can have a very very good day and still concede goals. I mean, 
Look at yeah. Thibaut Courtois last night. He played very well, still conceded four goals. So you can look at it and say, yes, it's not really the, the best indicator. Unfortunately, it's, it's still one of the only ones we do have. <laughs> Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Goalkeepers don't keep clean sheets for me. Teams do. So, but it's it's going to be interesting anyway to see to see the rest of the season. Obviously, Liverpool have Aston Villa next, which is a tricky one. Uh, that's that's going to be a difficult game now, and it's going to be interesting to see how we go into it in terms of Newcastle tonight and what happens there. But again, I keep saying it, at least we have something to play for. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if we look ahead to the Villa game, obviously it's at Anfield, the last home game of the season. And it's going to be an emotional one for obvious reasons. I don't think any of the players who are leaving will actually start. No. Um, but we will go through them one by one and talk about, I suppose, what they are leaving behind, what they will be remembered for, whether they will go down in history as legends. And we will start with, pick a name out the hat, really, um, James Milner. Ah, yes. Well, <laughs> I mean, the first question, is he a legend? Yes. Unequivocally, I mean, yeah. someone who's had the kind of career he's had, even before he got to Liverpool, would have been called a Premier League legend. But when you consider what he's done in our building, and it's really hard to quantify how important he's been because so much of his good work is stuff that we don't see. We only hear people talking about it, and then we kind of see the evidence of it afterwards. You don't see it in 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 play. You're not seeing him digging out people in the dressing room, etc., or on the training pitch or wherever it is, maintaining these high standards. But again, maybe that's what he, that that's him in a nutshell, isn't it? It's not gregarious. It's not flashy big moments. It's just steady, solid um, application and able to um, l- give the team what they need at the right point. I think it's very, very telling that he was the only one of the four that Klopp tried to keep. Yeah. <clears throat> I thought you were going to expand on that, sorry. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, if you think about it, like, from Firmino's perspective, yes, we've got five forwards outside of that, but we also have had a lot of injuries with those forwards. So you can see a world where he's saying, well, maybe he wants the sixth to just be safe. Oxley chamberlain and Cater... It's a little bit more of a difficult conversation because obviously availability comes large in it. But most people would assume, oh, well, you know, when we've seen Milner on the pitch, he hasn't always gone to plan this season. I think it's fair to say. And yet he's still one of the highest appearance makers all competitions. I think he's made over 30 appearances this season. And yes, you can say that some of those are six-minute appearances, seven-minute appearances. Klopp still felt the need to bring him on. He still thought this game needs Milner. And I think that's going to be the hardest thing next season when we're in a game where we're like, this game needs a bit of Milner and he's not there. Yeah, I, I do think it's, I do think personally it's it's the right time to move on. Um, but I do think if, if Klopp has shown any intention to keep him, I do think it probably just stems from the fact that he is a manager's dream, essentially. You know, since since Klopp came in, I think Milner joined a couple of months before Klopp arrived. So he's been there for the whole time. And yeah. throughout that period, he's he's been the ultimate the ultimate tool really for a for a manager to use in terms of obviously 
we we know what he offers in terms of dressing room stuff, winning mentality, mentality, professionalism, and all that. But in a tactical sense as well, just being super helpful in terms of like playing as a left back when Liverpool didn't really have one before Andy Robertson really established himself. Then playing as a right back for the for the, for the same reasons really in terms of like helping them integrate behind the scenes, mm-hmm. um, allowing Liverpool not to go and buy a new right back, and as a result of that, you kind of block a spot for Trent to come through into, and then eventually establishing himself as, I suppose, like the ultimate workhorse midfielder that Liverpool really benefited from in the in the early stages of of Klopp's success at Liverpool. You know, he was kind of the the template almost uh, alongside Henderson in terms of just a player who was physical, industrious, tactically intelligent, mm-hmm. and self-sacrificing really in terms of allowing the fullbacks to go and influence the game. And on the back of that, you just kind of play a a quiet role and save the team almost. And he he's, he's done that relentlessly over the years, and he's he's, he's had fewer minutes. A lot of the time, year on year, really, but he just gets on with it. He doesn't really bother too much about it, and yeah, he's he's set the mentality, and he, he for me he comfortably goes down as a legend. Yeah, I think two things I think stick out for me the most when you consider what we've all said about what he's known for, what we think about when we talk about Milner. The first things that come to mind, outside of those things, two things: one when he got seven assists in one Champions League season, I mean, which is still the record, by the way. And it's not something we think about from him because now when you've got to think about set pieces, it's normally Trent or it's Robertson. But there was a time when it was Milner on set pieces and he was able to deliver in a way that we probably don't recognise now. And the second one, penalties. Like, think back to last season, right? Think back to last season start of both penalty shootouts, how calm were you knowing Milner was at first? Yeah. I was extremely calm knowing Milner was at first. And I th- was thinking that during extra time in both games. It's like, well, okay, if we don't score here, if we get the first pen, we'll at least be 1-0 up. And we will. <laughs> and the ability to take penalties under pressure and make them look simple is one of the things that we take for granted the most, I think, in football. And we've kind of seen a little bit of it here this season with the struggles of Mo Salah. But to be a lock for penalties is is really hard to do throughout your career. And I mean, I think he's missed, I think he's missed one or two in his entire Liverpool career. But percentage-wise, that's very, very, very high. Yeah, he is he's very reliable and I think when it comes down to one of the reasons Klopp has been so reluctant to lose him is just is because of the, the leadership elements that he offers and um you do know what you're getting when it comes to him and he is very vocal and things like that. But I also think that to an extent when when he departs, other players are naturally inclined to fill that void. And I think on the back of his departure, potentially you see Trent potentially step up into like a bit more of a Steven Gerrard kind of role at Liverpool in terms of leadership and stuff. People notice that Milner's not there and people almost it, it, it can empower players. It can people players can take it upon themselves to fill a void. And that is why sometimes even though you were looking to lose that kind of figure, 
you you almost need it for development purposes, really. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 not a nice thing to see him lost, but as I said, other players can step up into that void. And I think what one of his main roles over the past few seasons has been when Liverpool need to see a game out, um, for like the final twenty minutes, half an hour. Klopp will introduce Milner a lot of the time, and a lot of that stems from his his tendency to be really vocal on the pitch and his experience and all that intangible stuff. But I th- I think recently, I'm not sure it was the Leicester game. It was it was a game recently, and late in the match we introduced Henderson and and Milner. And one of the things I've mentioned quite a few times on this podcast is the. the, the <laughs> They're not the best at offering control when proceedings are a bit chaotic. That rather than putting the foot on the ball, relaxing, being a little bit um, javi, if you want, it they almost get embroiled in it, and it becomes very English football in the park, hoofing the ball and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think sometimes his introduction, although it's I can understand why Klopp is doing it. It, it can have a, a bit of a negative effect. And just for a bit of an example on that, is I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, it's a really basic statistic, but pass completion that this season, Milner completes about just under 77% of his passes. And I think recently he came on for Curtis Jones to see out a game. It might have been West Ham away. And... Um, Curtis Jones, for for example, so far this season is bang on ninety percent for his pass completion. So you're bringing on a player there who's got more experience and all this stuff. He's more vocal and all that. I get it, but he's just far more inclined to lose the ball and, and panic almost. Um, so again, I don't want to frame Milner's departure as a positive in any way, but it's no, it, no. I, 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 do, I do think it's integral to the, the evolution of this team now. I, I, I agree with you in that point. I think that there has been times, particularly when the two of them play together, when our ability to keep the ball has been lost. And when you are holding on to a lead late in the game, that's arguably the most important thing because they can't score when you have the ball. So yeah. I think you're right. I think in the way it's time for other people to step up and do the Milner things, who can also do some of the things that Milner and can't still do anymore, such as keep the ball. And it's interesting to see what will happen once he's gone, because I think I, I always think back to on this point, I always think back to Arsenal when Vieira left and then uh, Thierry Henry left a couple of years later and the effect that that had on Cesc Fabregas, who was still a young man, but once those two totems of the team left, he knew that it was up to him to be the fulcrum, not only creatively, but also within that dressing room. And I would never have expected him to become as good a leader as he was when those two were there. I didn't see it in him. But once they were gone and there was no one to do it for him, he had to come up and step up. And it'll be interesting to see which of our players, I do think you're right. I think Trent definitely has that ability in him. And now maybe he's back to being a little bit more confident in what he's doing on the pitch and his role in the team, then he can be a little bit more vocal and a little bit more um, expectant of his teammates and feel confident that he's doing his own job as well. So it's going to be interesting, but I agree. As much as it's painful to see him go, the time is right. 
Yeah, I think it's part of the the next evolution of this team, and you know the the midfield department has been very same for the whole of Klopp's tenure, really. And and now we're going to see what a Jurgen Klopp team looks like on Anfield with a a revitalised midfield department full of technical ability and things like that potentially. Uh, but in terms of who we talk about next, um, sorry mate, I'm just uh, just looking for me tin hat. Just because, <laughs> 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 so, Nabi Keita. <laughs> I mean, this is going to be a controversial one, probably. There'll be lots of people who are listening who are fuming with what we say. There'll be some people listening who love what we say. And that sums up Nabi Keita's Liverpool career, I think. But, Mo, I'll let you, I'll let you sum it up. What do you think? Analyzing Anfield. On the Blood Red Channel. Well, I was very to start off with. I was very much on the Naby train when we signed him. I was someone who watched the Bundesliga regularly at that point, and I saw him dominating games. And I could see, honestly, and I say this with no lack of hyperbole, the way that Jude Bellingham has been playing this season for Dortmund. That was what Naby Keita was doing, as in he was able to be a dominant player and do it all. But for various reasons, he has never been that player for Liverpool. Now, that's not to say that Klopp wanted him to be precisely that player for Liverpool, because we have seen many times a player come into the building and Klopp has a different plan in mind for them than what they were doing before. However, I do think that if you look over the entirety of Naby's career, the times when he was performing at the level we expected him to weren't very many. And it's difficult because I do think more than any other player, the perception of what we were getting compared to what we got was a problem. It was a big problem. And people weren't able to see what he was doing because they were too concentrating on what he wasn't doing, which is what they thought they were getting. So even when he was performing well, People were like, oh, but it's not what we were getting. And so I feel for him in a lot of ways. But I think if he was honest with himself, he would say that he's not been able to give his best in the Liverpool show. Yeah. If, if we go back a few years to when we agreed to, to sign him, I would have done exactly what Michael Edwards did. So initially I had absolutely no issues whatsoever with the sign. I was made up, I was over the moon. We signed him a year in advance, which is very, very unusual. And to do that basically epitomises how almost caused he, he was by Liverpool. Um, he he looked like the perfect player for what we were doing. He was a absolute Red Bull product in, in terms of coming out of Salzburg, coming out of Leipzig, which we know there's associations there with Jürgen Klopp's game and suitability and stuff. Mm-hmm. He was extremely well-rounded in terms of if you put him in a defensive role and asked him to regain the ball for you frequently, he looked like an outlier. And if you asked him to offer stuff going forward in terms of creative passing, dribbling, maybe scoring the odd goal, again, he looked like an outlier. So he looked like a, a, the ultimate all-rounder, really. He was really, really technical. Um, 
could cover a lot of ground, very energetic, could put a foot in. Um, I remember, I don't, I don't, I honestly don't think this is that much of an exaggeration, but when I, when I watched them in the Bundesliga and I looked, watched clips of them and I looked at his numbers and stuff, I remember describing them at the time as almost a hybrid of what it would look like if you kind of merged and go low Kante with Isco. <laughs> that was kind of the player I had in mind. Um, I don't mean the player as in like all of Kante plus all of Isco equals K. I don't mean as in like both of them like that, but I mean just shades of them both. Like if you put one at one end of the scale and the other at the other end of the scale, Casey would be bang in the middle, I felt. And uh, I think he arrived as like, he was supposed to be the transformational figure for Liverpool's midfield. Obviously, at that point, it was it was very um, dogged, maybe disciplined, almost limited to an extent. Um, and I think Casey was supposed to come in and, and transform the quality to an extent. I also potentially think that the idea was for him to come in and oust potentially Henderson or 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 Wijnaldum, um, possibly Wijnaldum. But it just it just never really happened for um initially it did first game of the season right after joining he started and on the bench is henderson or wild one of them was on the bench i think um i'd be wrong in saying that but he he, he, he arrived at this this transformational play and it just never really turned out to be that and if you look at his liverpool career as a whole across his five seasons now in the premier league He's averaged 9.8 starts per season, which sums up the problem, really. 100% sums up the problem. And I think the injuries question is always going to be the biggest part of it because he will say that was what stopped him getting to where he wanted to be. Whereas, I don't know, it's difficult because the... You see some players who are regularly getting injuries and people are able to empathise with them and say, God, it's so unfair. Just imagine what he could have and would have been if it weren't for those injuries. It was so unfair. I mean, I feel like that might be what we go on to say about one of the other guys. But (laughs) Naby's never given that grace. He's almost... There's a perception, whereas almost because... When he's on the pitch, he occasionally will do something silly, and and that will all, everyone will jump on that one thing. But I don't know what it is, but for some reason he doesn't get that grace. It's almost as if some people think, "Oh well, God, he's injured again." It's because, and he's injured again because he's so soft or he's so brittle, and these are things that are his fault. When the reality is, they are. What? And I think that ask. Assessing him as a Liverpool player, that perception has always kind of clouded it. So I don't think I can I can see him getting to a point in the future where he thinks I didn't really get a fair shake at Liverpool. And there's an argument to say, well, maybe that's true. But the reality is, is that you need to be available. You need to be ready when opportunity knocks. Curtis Jones this season is the biggest example of exactly that. He had struggled and he couldn't find his way, then opportunity knocked and he took it with both hands. I'm. You'll have to check. I'm not sure if there's ever been a run of nine starts in a row for Naby Keita in the last five years, but I'd be very surprised if there was. 
Yeah, I'm not too sure to be honest. He's in, in his final Bundesliga game, Bundesliga season. He started 23. Season before, he started 29. At Liverpool, his most starts in the Premier League is 16. That was in his debut season. Last season, he started 14. But then the other three seasons, this season, three starts, seven starts, nine starts. It's just not what you'd expect from a. a 50, 60 million pound midfielder or whatever we paid at the time. Um, so, I don't know, part of the reason he wants to leave seems to stem from his belief that he's been available for more than you would think and Klopp hasn't used him, which yeah. is possible. It's curious, though. Um, but with, with, with that, I do have a slight, very slight concern, almost... Because for me, it depicts it reminds me a little bit of Nunes in the sense that when Naby first arrived, he was very good at all his stuff, naturally influential in terms of winning matches and stuff like that, and um, seems to be a, an intense fit for Klopp's game and stuff. Good age, uh, lots of potential, rough diamond almost. Um, but A, he arrived and couldn't speak the language. Even though he knew he was moving to England the year in advance, and and B, <laughs> tactically, seemed to be, um, how can I put it, <laughs> a bit raw. Let's say that, that's mm. probably the best way of putting it. And I think those those two apply to Nunes to a slightly lesser extent in terms of language, obviously, because he he's still learning it. But apparently, he still can't speak it particularly well, and it's you know we're basically. In, in, a year a year into his move now. And in terms of his tactical um nous, whatever you want to call it, I still think Nunes is is, is off it defensively. Um like recently Klopp la- labelled them as a racehorse and not in a positive way. If you if you watch the clip, he means in the sense that he was supposed to stick to Palinia and he he weren't. He was just closing people down aimlessly. Yeah. Um and that is part of the reason I think why Nunes is basically not fell off the map, but he's he's not a starter the second half of the season. And I think it's, I checked the other day actually. Uh, I think this is interesting. So so far this season in the Premier League, Nunes has started nineteen times in the Premier League, and for the most part he's been fit. Cody Gakpo arrived in the middle of the season, and he's already started sixteen. And they've both been largely available, and Klopp has referenced Gapo's tactical intelligence and the fact he's a super smart football player on a number of occasions already. And I think I, I just do you see what I mean? Do you see what I'm getting? Yeah, one hundred percent. I I I do see how you can draw that comparison. I, and those things are things I am worried about with Nunes. I think when the difference between them. For Naby, that year where he was here but he wasn't here was actually a disaster, like an absolute disaster. Not only did his form drop off for Leipzig, I think he got three red cards that season in the Bundesliga, and there was a, a, tra- a fight in training that he was involved in. His focus, for whatever reason, dropped massively. Now, I have some sympathy in as much as He's not really going to be able to be learning Liverpool tactics while he's still a Leipzig player. But you're right. He can learn English. 
And I think he knew that Sadio Mane was going to be there. And I think he kind of leaned on him a little bit too much in the early days, as in say, well, I, I can speak to this guy. And then once um, uh, I get a little bit more confident, I'll be able to speak to everyone. But he in there just kind of leaning on Sadio. And again, that's attitude issues, I think, personally, that came to bear. With Nunes, I think he's trying. I think he really is trying. Yeah. I think that's going to be the biggest thing that helps him over Naby is in not only is he trying, we can all see he's trying. He's like, he's leaving it all out there. I mean, you want to channel it a bit better, but no one's can say that he's not giving everything. And I think that's going to buy him patience. But ultimately, if he can't get it, he's going to continue to find himself watching on while Gakpo racks up the starts and probably the goals and assists as well. Yeah, I mean, in terms of Naby Keita, it does feel very much what, what could have been. Um, and I do feel like there's probably an alternate universe out there where he comes in and basically becomes Liverpool's version of De Bruyne or Kante or, you know, that, that transformational centre mid that we're still kind of looking for, really. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, what are your thoughts? He's got a hell of a highlight reel. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> like, genuinely. From, from uh, Manchester City games alone, I think. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, again, he's a, the, the one, it's a little bit more obvious with him because it's not just injuries, plural. It's one injury. The one that happened in the Champions League semi-final against Roma. Like, that moment was the sliding doors moment for him because what we were talking about just now being a dominant, forceful driving midfielder for Liverpool. That was him. He was doing it. He was doing it. And this was after him leaving Arsenal because they didn't believe that he could do it. They had him pegged as a wing-back slash winger. That was his job. That was where he was going to find his place in the side. And he was like, no, I can play in midfield. I can play in central midfield. I can do this job. And he was doing it. Like, it's hard to remember now because it was so long ago. But that period of from January of that year up until that semi-final, he was outstanding in that role. And he was a lock. He was being picked for all of the big games. So I have a lot more sympathy for him personally than I do for Cater when the injuries hit. And it's hard to say that any of the problems he's had since wouldn't have been solved if he'd been able to maintain his fitness. But the fact remains that once again, he hasn't been able to do what we wanted him to do for as long as we wanted him to do it. And some of his contributions have kind of gone a little bit under the radar. Like I do think last season he was very important. Like people talk about Diaz and the impact he had coming in in January. Like, Diaz really came in in the end of January. Like, the period where we needed a forward because Mane and Salah were AFCON, the forward was also Chamberlain. I think he scored two goals, got one assist in three games, uh, in which we took seven points, which were absolutely crucial. And so you get periods like that where he can come out of the wilderness and contribute. So, yes, I, I, I think... 
when he comes back, he's definitely going to get a warm reception. But yeah, he will probably still deep down be a little bit disappointed. Yeah, I think it's similar in terms of what what might have been, um, and t- to an extent, he was, I suppose, on track in terms of delivering mm-hmm. what, what what we planned for him to deliver at Liverpool. He was becoming that kind of third centre mid, who was a bit more offensive than a typical eight, but a bit less offensive than any of the forwards. But he was kind of in between them, uh, and he had the mobility to do both to a really high level, very fast, very explosive almost in the middle um very transition as well really suited Klopp's original blueprints if you want mm-hmm. um and that was why he, he prospered so much against Manchester City as well um his ability to, to lead counter attacks and um also get recovery pace going the opposite way really good sh- shooting from outside the box and things like that but then as you say he got he got this massive injury and I think essentially Liverpool left him behind. And by the time he came back, the makeup of the team had changed. Liverpool weren't as transition based. Liverpool relied on attack and threat coming from the fullbacks rather than Ox or, or anyone in Ox's position. Middle of the park was about security, it was about safety nets. Ox has never been about that particularly. Um, and he seemed to have understandably lost a bit of a yard of pace potentially and, and things like that. So I think that's pretty much the story of it, really. I think if he doesn't get injured, he could have developed into, you know, a really solid weapon in, in Liverpool's midfield, a really um penetrative, powerful centre mid. Um but he ended up ended up not happening mainly because of the injury and as a, you know, similar to Sturridge, really. Sturridge was top, top player, but Liverpool ultimately, Klopp ultimately had to leave him behind because he, he weren't available. So we had to plan a different way and, and Firmino took the shirt and we went from there. And then when whenever Sturridge would come in, he was just kind of like, play a few minutes for us, play a few minutes for us. There was never a plan designed around him. Um, so it's unfortunate for him, but it's just the way it goes, really. Yeah, I mean, that is football, isn't it? And there are so many times where uh, serendipity and luck can play the biggest part in a player's career. Like when someone gets injured and then someone else comes in and suddenly you realise you've got a player and then the whole team changes and like you say, things evolve beyond him. For Alex, I think the interesting thing for me is going to be who his next club is. Because I do still think that with the right team, and playing the right system, if he stays fit, he can still be a really good player for someone. I just hope that he chooses correctly and um, he was he's able to show that. Yeah, funnily enough, I'm just looking at the teams in the league now to determine who potentially suits him. Um, <laughs> I think Leeds potentially did before they got rid of Jesse Marsh. Southampton potentially did before they got rid of Hasenhull. <laughs> yeah. Both of them were in a relegation zone, by the way. But I just think he I think he's at his best when he's a, a third midfielder, third number eight, who is primarily responsible for carrying you up the pitch as like a transition vehicle kind of player almost. Um oh, I agree. So I think it's, it's gonna be interesting. But I think he'll stay in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Well, there are rumours that West Ham are looking at him. 
And now I don't think that he'd be able to be a direct replacement for Declan Rice. But if you have someone else doing the Rice role and you add him to your midfield stock, for example, if you're maybe thinking of dropping Lucas Pakatar alongside Suchek and using them as the pivot, and then you have Oxlade Chamberlain ahead of you, I can see that working. I can see that working for sure. Whether he'd want to play with Moyes, I don't know. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the kind of that's the kind of club where I think he can go and do well. Yeah, Roberto Firmino. <laughs> I've deliberately chose to end on a positive note here. Uh, what a player! And just so many wonderful magical moments. Again, like I said, that oh, sorry, Chamberlain's got a great highlight reel. Bobby's got the best. Like Bobby's mm-hmm. highlight reel. Like if they're gonna do it. A tribute for him after the game. They need to let me know now because I've got a gig at half seven. <laughs> so if there's going to do a Bobby highlight reel, we might be there a few extra hours. But I think back to when we first signed him and it kind of came a little bit out of nowhere. And it was like a lot of money comparatively compared to what we were spending previously. And eyebrows were raised. It was a bit like, oh, but there was also a sign of, well, this guy could be something a little bit different. We don't know what we're getting. And then obviously Rogers kind of didn't know what he was getting either and, and ended up not really utilised him perfectly. And then Klopp came in and suddenly he turned into this absolute magician. And one of the things I always respect Bobby for, we've seen plenty of attackers, particularly South American attackers, come into the league who have a similar amount of flair, skill as he has. But let's face it, can be a liability going the other way and within the team framework. Bobby is Mr. Team. Like, how many time, How many years was it where they were saying Bobby is the system? He blows the system. Like, it would not have worked without him. Now, you yeah. can say that potentially about Mo Salah. You can say about Virgil van Dijk, about Allison. Bobby's the one. Like, you can have all of those same players without Firmino. I don't think we do as well. It's just that simple. Yeah, yeah, I agree, mate. I think he is, I've previously said it, I wrote a piece on it earlier in the year, I think. He he is the architect, for me, of Liverpool's, of Klopp's Liverpool, as we know it now, at least. Klopp's going to build a new team this summer from next season onwards. But the Klopp's Liverpool that we know so far Firmino was the architect because when Klopp first got there, he looked around, assessed the options that he had, didn't have a great deal. <laughs> and uh, one thing he did add was, was, was Roberto Firmino, who was such a well-rounded forward, so so defensive-minded in his ways, so capable of keeping the ball and in, a, in an unselfish manner that it made sense to basically shape Everton around him. The fact that Liverpool have dominated the midfield for so many years stems from the fact that he offers a fourth midfield option at times by dropping into the, the middle and almost forming a diamond shape. He's the reason why Liverpool showed so much interest in wide forwards who'd, offer, who'd provide goals and speed from the wings because if there's, he, he, doesn't offer, he doesn't offer speed. For me, no, he never has. doesn't offer that many goals, so you get that from elsewhere. So... That makeup of Liverpool's attack has been shaped by by Firmino's presence and what he initially needed to 
thrive in a system, if you like. Yeah. Um, so, and if you look at why Liverpool and the city balls, I mean, if you look back at his numbers at Hoffenheim, I mean, at the age of 21 in the Bundesliga, he starts 33 times, scores 16, and posts 11 assists. That's a seriously interesting player. And if someone did that now, considering numbers are more prominent now, yeah, we'd be talking about Marlon Lasnanfield. Um, and the following season, age 22, again starts 33 times, seven goals and 10 assists. So you've got a player there who is creative for a start, uh, predominantly setting up others, versatile because he plays in a number of different roles. Uh, attainable because he's only playing for Hoffenheim. By the way, those two seasons I've just mentioned, Hoffenheim finished ninth and then eighth. So he's, he's, he's doing a lot there. So you can see why Liverpool were interested in him. And then when he comes, obviously, Brendan Rodgers doesn't originally seem to know how to deploy him, from what I thought. Um, Firmino plays 13 minutes, 21 minutes, 62, 60, 45, 64, 19, 34... Rogers just playing him on the wings and everything, and so it, it didn't really work. But as soon as Klopp comes in, he interprets his game perfectly, in my opinion, as like the ultimate false nine, and and we go from there. I think the the, the thing about Bobby that I always have to remember, particularly at that time, is that the reason why Rogers was so reluctant or didn't really know what to do with him is because he didn't really sign him. Yeah, the rest of the team signed him. He signed Benteke. Yeah, and. So Benteke was always going to be the guy who he gave the, the, the central forward role. He was always going to be the guy who he was given the most um, opportunity to do well. But the reality is, is that Edwards had already seen something else and he'd already said, well, no, this guy can be the glue guy. And it just so happened that when Klopp came in, he thought the same thing. And that Edwards and Klopp being on the same page, that was the first, that was the beginning. And it, for all we know, it could have been that um, maybe coming together over Firmino, what forged that relationship that was so spectacular over the course of the years to come. So I'll always love Bobby. And then again, we have to talk about his joy. Like, we can't talk about Firmino without talking about joy. Joy on the pitch. Like, Unfortunately, it's something that you don't see very often anymore. It used to be something you'd see. There'd always be characters, someone who would be a little bit different, a maverick, who you'd be like, you know what? Win, lose or draw, that guy really loves being a footballer and you can see it through every pore. Bobby is that guy. Like, he loves it. I mean, the Leicester game, the the, the chant that lasted 15 minutes. And it's like, <laughs> we, we knew he wasn't on the pitch. Like, But yeah. that's how we feel about him because... He, when we're happy, when we have joy, it's normally because of him. So he's one of the names we think of, even if he's not on the pitch. Yeah, yeah, special player. Um, as I said, I think I think he's the architect of of what Liverpool have done over the past few years. And Klopp's persisted with signing these kind of inside forward players with Luis Diaz and Diogo Jota and players like that. Um, Cody Gakpo seems to be trying to replicate elements of what Firmino has offered over the past few years. Darwin Nunes doesn't fit any of the moulds, which I think is, again, very interesting. I don't think he's a wide forward, personally, and he's not a Firmino type or a Gakpo type. So whether, again, that suggests Liverpool are moving towards a new, a, a new way of doing things, a new dynamic, um, with maybe someone like a McAllister or a Jones or a Mount 
doing the Firmino stuff mm-hmm. with Nunes putting the ball in the net, potentially. But who knows? But the original architect of Liverpool's game was Firmino. And it'll be interesting to see in, like, I don't know, three or four years who who is the architect for kind of Klopp 2.0. Mm-hmm. But Firmino is, is the original. And uh, I hope he gets on the pitch and I hope he gets the the ovation ovation that he that he that he deserves. Oh, he will. I mean, he'll get that if he's on the pitch or not. In fact, yeah, Villa are going to have to work very hard to not hear the Bobby Firmino song for ninety minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we we have dedicated a long episode there to the players that are leaving. We're over an hour, so uh, <laughs> Mo, thanks for joining us, mate. No worries. I'm happy to go down memory lane with those lads. Yeah, and next week, hopefully, we are talking about the exciting prospect of top four, and hopefully, we're talking about a Firmino Hasek or something like that that he might have got during the during the weekend. But yeah, we'll see you then, and uh, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red Channel. <laughs>